You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hello there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Welcome you to another episode of the Sectarian Interview Podcast. Um, I teach English at Mount Aloysius College uh, most of the time, but I do this show once a week. I'm really enjoying the uh, interaction I have with people who listen, so don't be shy. Send me an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Contact us at Facebook. Like the Facebook page. That would be awesome. And uh, if you can take a minute to leave us a review on whatever service you stream your podcast through, uh, that would help a lot of other people find us. And that would be awesome too. Um, and in addition, I keep forgetting there's a little, you can leave a voice message thing on the website. If you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, there's a leave voicemail tab. And, uh, some people have, uh, left a couple messages here letting me know of problems with downloading or whatever. But if you have a comment about the show, that would be awesome too. And maybe get your voice played on the show, um, be an unofficial guest in that way. But uh, let's get right into the topic today. So um, a few weeks ago, I had the great pleasure of hosting Matthew Brake to talk about um, pop culture and theology. And uh, and Matt uh, decided to uh, reach out and come back with for another topic today. We're going to be a little bit more specific and talk about comics uh, and theology. And so I'm really excited about this. Uh, Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, it's great to see you again. Um, we in pre-game conversation discover or realize we're both going to the same conference in a few weeks uh, to see uh, to talk about Batman. Actually, there's a Batman conference at Bowling Green, and uh, and uh, we'll both be there. If anybody's in the area and one wants to uh, to meet up, send me a message, and I'd be happy to grab coffee with you. But uh, but uh, Matthew, you're going to be doing some stuff on Batman and theology and other things, and uh, and I will be talking with Coyle Neal and Chris Maverick. We're going to do a little panel about Batman and race. And, uh, and I think that I'm very excited about taking part of this whole conference. So, um, and so, yeah, take a look at the Bowling Green conference if you're in the area, um, check it out. So, um, so, but today we're going to be talking about, uh, before we start talking about comics and theology, I want to give you a chance to plug what's going on at pop culture and theology and, and your whole, a range of activities you've got, you've got <laughs> more pies than fingers to put them in. Right. And so, um, <laughs> that, that's that's probably true um like i'm probably making a mistake that i'll regret down the road <laughs> like oh overworking this is what that is got it um yeah uh so the website popcultureandtheology.com um i'm still getting some great stuff there just in terms of blogs and contributions uh danny's actually going to have one on it's how it's i think it's on halloween it's right? on halloween that's right yes yeah. um yeah, I uh, I saw a fascist metaphor in how in the new Halloween movie, and I had to write about it. And so, and you were kind enough to tell me you'd put it up on the blog, so I appreciate that. Yeah, ha- Halloween in March. Um, <laughs> These ideas so, come to us when they come to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in, in all fairness, your Tom Waits Christmas one came out right at the right time, but you know, it's hit and miss. Like, will this be the like? I expect an Earth Day one here in the future, um, but in like November. <laughs> okay, perfect. Yes, I'll get on that in, um, in, in August. Yes, <laughs> go, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, 
attached to the website um, initially was a book series. It still is theology and pop culture through Lexington books and fortress academic, which is a Roman and Littlefield imprint for those of you who are interested in publishers. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a good publisher. Um, and so that series, uh, I pitched it last year at the American Academy of religion. It got picked up. I've been recruiting authors and editors and all sorts of people. Uh, so I'm going, I, I'm publishing, trying to get a bunch of different books published in a couple different, um, avenues. I have the typical type of book you get with a series like this where it's theology and your favorite pop culture genre, TV show, music, whatever. Um, recently I'm, I've been trying to pick up some ones that are more so about a particular theological discipline and pop culture. So, I have one right now under contract from Joshua Wise, uh, who has some popular books on theology, and I think not Assassin's Creed. It's another video game series. That's not important right now, but he's doing one for me on eschatology and pop culture. Uh, I have one coming in on soteriology and pop culture or theology of salvation and pop culture. Um, I just got one on pneumatology, the theology of the spirit and pop culture. Uh, and, and I hope to keep getting more of these. Eventually, I'd like to look at particular the- theologians themselves, like someone like, you know, um, Catherine Tanner and pop culture, um, which would be an interesting one because Tanner's actually written on pop culture uh, and, and an essay and a book I have. So so that series is going well. I currently have 17 volumes um, that are under contract. So the first one should be dropping late fall 2019, early 2020. And those will be on Prince, Game of Thrones, um, Black Panther. Uh, and you can find those on the website under popcultureandtheology.com. At the top, you'll see a link that says Theology and Pop Culture Series. Um, and so you'll see the list there. There's ones on Star Wars, Star Trek, the Marvel Universe, uh, Neil Gaiman. Actually, Gaiman retweeted that call for papers the other day. I was really excited oh, about that. That's awesome. Wow, that's, <laughs> that'll get you some audience right there. That's yeah, great. yeah. I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> I love you, Neil. <laughs> well, who doesn't, right? Um, yeah. And uh, and incidentally, I'll put a link to that on the show notes for the show. Um, if anybody wants to uh, to check that out, it's all it's a great resource and it's a really cool, exciting thing that kind of fits in within our. Uh, right in our wheelhouse here at sectarian review. So that's great. I'm glad to hear things are are picking up there. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to that, um, you know, my love of pop culture, I do love, I've always been a Trekkie love star Wars. Like there's a lot of pop culture I like, but my scholarly interest in pop culture, uh, really focuses on comics. And I teach a religion literature class at George Mason where I focus on comics, particularly the so-called British invasion, writers, uh, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, a little bit of Frank Miller, um, all white guys, which I'm eventually I would love to incorporate someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates once he has a more, a broader, uh, range. Uh, but, but anyway, aside from the class, um, one of the things I really wanted was a volume one comics. And the problem with pitching it to Lexington is, Comics can be kind of niche in terms of uh, their appeal. So when I pitched this, the Theology and Pop Culture series, the goal was to focus more on broader genres. Um, we do have some specific ones focusing on certain TV shows like Westworld, The Americans, things like that. But uh, we also, 
But for the most part, we want to have something like sci-fi in general, fantasy in general. Um, but I really want to write on comics. So like, that's really what I want to do. If I publish anything, I want to write on, uh, on comic books. And so when I was at the American Academy of Religion, I went to the Claremont School of Theology uh, reception and met their press acquisitions editor or director. Uh, and he had this awesome vision for um, making books in their publisher open, re- uh, open source, making them available in JSTOR, uh, you know, releasing them in paperback first for a $20 to $30 price point. Um, giving the series editors $2 per copy sold, uh, making the royalties on a, uh, sort of a five, 10 and 15% rate. So, I mean, it was just really good. And I was like, okay, I want to do something through here. And if I did something more niche, like religion and comics, religion opens up, you know, what you can write about a bit more. And then comics is what I love to write about. So I went to a colleague of mine who I deeply respect, who's very much into the world of comic books, A. David Lewis. David has a number of really great books. He has one on Muslim superheroes. Um, I think that's that might be co-written with Mark or co-edited with Martin Lund. I can't remember. Um, he has this book called Graven Images, which have all these essays on religion and comics. It's it's very much worth checking out. Uh, he also has a, a hardcover hardback series from Palgrave on uh also on religion and pop culture so uh so david's in that world and i asked him if he could be my co-editor because he is a phd and i don't i just collect master's degrees like pokemon (laughs) and uh he said yes we pitched it to tom uh phillips at claremont and he approved it and so we put together our editorial board and we're just waiting to you know sign some contracts and get a page up on the claremont site but um i have a link on my on the pop culture and theology website that says religion and pop culture, uh, religion and comic series. And there's really, there's nothing there. It says coming soon. I'll probably put this podcast episode there, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I'm excited. We're currently talking through what will be our inaugural volumes. Uh, we'll probably do about two or three a year, um, working together on, uh, editing. We are, we are trying to make like one that we're looking at being our inaugural volume. Um, or at least one of our first volumes is something on the comics of G. Willow Wilson, uh, who created Kamala Khan, Miss Marvel, you know, this uh, Muslim superhero teenager right. that deals with a lot of representational issues in, uh, in comics. And so I, I actually have not gotten into the Miss Marvel series, but um, I know enough about it to know that it's important um, to lead there. And, you know, G. Willow Wilson now is also doing stuff with Wonder Woman. Um, and she's had, I mean, she's written some issues of Superman, like she's done a lot of, of stuff there. And then right now we're currently talking through what the second volume would be, but, uh, there's going to be some good stuff coming down the road. Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to see this kind of thing happening. And, and I'm really excited to hear that that press is putting this work out with a mind towards making it marketable towards people who 
don't have academic interests in it. They just sort of have passionate interests in, in, in the subject matter and uh, sort of putting it at a price point where you could actually engage a conversation with people outside of the academy, I think is a, is a really, really cool um, aspect of this. And something that, you know, me as a teacher at a college, I mean, that's a source that my students would probably be able to uh, uh, relate to a lot more than, than other things, right? And so I think that's really, really great. Um, can I ask you one question? Now, this is mostly for the clarification of certain listeners, but probably for myself as well. Um, you're making a distinction between theology and religion, and, and that's an important distinction you're making in this. Um, I think I have a sense of what the what, what's implied in that difference and what, what's at stake in that terminology, but can you just sort of spell it out for us so that we know what we're talking about when we talk about theology? Sure. Uh, when we talk about um, theology, we're talking about a discussion of a of a religion from within by people who are a part of that tradition, they're insiders of a tradition, and they're a part of that religious community. Now, that being said, I do get some pushback from some of my colleagues for using that term because there are also religious traditions that are non-theistic, and theology means God talk, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so... so there, there are also maybe I get some pushback for the use of the term. But basically, with theology and pop culture, I'm trying to get the idea of religious insiders talking about uh, their tradition from within. Is basically what I'm trying to communicate there that there's something legitimate to listen to that makes us need to think about um, the truth, partial truth of any religious tradition from the inside. Like if a person comes claiming. Um, as a Muslim that the world and God are certain ways, then we shouldn't dismiss it because it's just religion. Like with theology, I am interested in capital T truth in the realm of theology. And I definitely believe certain capital T truths about the world, but I also believe in the importance of religion, of, uh, the importance of religious dialogue, religious representation, um, and learning about each other along the way. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and, and even then, like I open up theology even more broadly to talk about, you know, I say it on the, the Roman Littlefield website, um, that, you know, I'm open to anthropology, I'm open to religious studies, philosophy of religion, anthropology of religion. Uh, I'm open to, um, non-religious scholars of religion, <laughs> yeah. to put it that way. Um, on the blog and on, and in that book series. Yeah. Like I, like I think when I named the series, I was reading Carl Bart at the time and for Bart, like, you know, we shouldn't have to apologize for talking about theology. Yeah. Um, and, and that's sort of my, my take, like I don't apologize for being a religious insider who believes certain things about the world. And I don't think others, uh, should have to apologize either. They've made existential commitments and I'm okay both dialoguing and, engaging in friendly debate and argument about capital T religious truths. Yeah. Yeah. I think that clears it up really well. So yeah, there's a a way in which to talk about Batman and theology, for example, is to think about your conception of God by an engagement with Batman. Right. And, and, and to think about Batman and religion, it's sort of, um, it's a less personal exploration of your personal faith. It's a more of a sociological or anthropological almost, uh, approach to it. 
Yes, yeah. very anthropological. I mean, this is there's a famous article by Jay Z Smith, who's a religious studies scholar, called "Religion, Religious, and Religions." Yeah, where he breaks down this distinction about the his the problematic history of using the term religion to describe this thing. Yeah. you and I, when we talk about religion, we think we know it when we see it, but I mean, when you study the the genealogy of the word, it's really interesting. But ultimately, for Jay Z Smith, he says, you know, uh, the term religion we understand it four ways. One is that people who are inside of a tradition don't use religion to describe what they're doing. Um, two, we understand religion as some sort of universal phenomenon. Three, the scholars of religion construct the definition of religion, which is why when you look at all the different scholars of religion, all of them have different um, definitions of religion. Yeah. And so that when I teach religious studies, uh, intro to religious studies, I go through some of the different ones like well, here's Durkheim, here's Eliade, here's Otto, here's Freud. Yeah. Um, notice how they're all different. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and then finally, um, the fourth characteristic is yes, it is anthropological and not theological. And so sometimes with my students, they want to critique certain theological beliefs. And I'm like, no, 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 we're just describing a human act, the human activity of this thing. We're not interested in whether or not God is real or not real in religious studies. We're looking at a particular group or people's idea of God, maybe, or lack thereof and conceiving a pop of reality in some other way. But um, it's we're not interested in truth or false right now. Yeah. In the academy, you don't go to a religion class to be converted uh, to a belief. Right. It's it's uh, it's much more of a. Uh, um, a history anthropo anthropologic anthropology class. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a good distinction, I think. And just so it's clear what we're talking about and why, you know, it matters whether you use one term or the other uh, in certain circumstances and other circumstances, frankly, in most walks of life, it doesn't matter, <laughs> but, but in the world of academic publishing, it does matter. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, and so uh, that's why we're uh, parsing out those definitions a little bit. So, um, so today um, you came to me with this idea and I have to say, uh, you know, much, much more about comics and you're much more well-read about uh, in them than I am. And so um, I kind of grew up reading comic books on a very consumer level. Like, I mean, I grew up just obsessed with Spider-Man, for example, and I still have hundreds of these old Spider-Man comic books from when I was a kid. I got out of it sometime in the 90s, and only in the last couple of years have I kind of jumped back into comics in their popular form, right? And so um, I'm out of my element, Donnie, uh, as they say, uh, in, in a little bit here. And so um, I'm, I... The way I would like to organize this conversation, if it's okay with you, is to talk about kind of three aspects of this question. Um, and so, first of all, there's like, to me, the representation of religion in comic books. Um, there's sort of metaphorical expressions of religious themes. Like, for example, you see Christ Christology in Superman's story, right? The, uh, the, 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 a lot of people like see him as a Christ figure, for example. Um, and then finally, there's the theological concepts as explored through comic texts. And, and that's kind of the three ways I think we can organize this a little bit. This is kind of a new topic for our show a little bit. We have kind of done things a little bit like this. I'm re remembering back um, a year or so ago when we did a couple of episodes on Infinity War and particularly one of them was focused on Thanos's uh, philosophy 
as opposed to um, Pope Francis's Laudato Si in terms of how to kind of manage the environment. And so that was a bit of what we're doing here. Um, but that was probably the best example I could think of on this show as a precedent for this. Um, this is kind of new territory for me is what I'm saying here. So can we start with the, the idea of just the representation of religion in comics? Um, maybe talk about some examples that we can analyze and just sort of see where the conversation goes. And then we'll move on to the other two topics. So um, what, what, what comes to mind when you talk about the way religion is represented in comics? Um, I, I wrote down a few, but I think one, um, the worst, trashiest, most terrible example of how this can be done, uh, I just added it to the show notes, actually, was uh, Frank Miller's Holy Terror. Okay. Um, so Frank Miller uh, is considered one of the greatest American comic book writers. I mean, it's his Dark Knight Returns that is one of the uh, seminal graphic novels that changes how modern comics are told. He's part of what inaugurates the so-called modern era in the mid eighties. Um, and he had also, he also has this, uh, popular daredevil run daredevil born again, which, you know, even then the representation, there are certain religious images used where certain things daredevil does represent particular stations of the cross. And there's the whole journey of death and resurrection, which is also sort of a monomyth, yeah. deal of like a hero's journey type and, thing. And, and that and that gets that Daredevil um material gets brought into the Netflix series pretty heavily, right? Um, um Nathan Gilmore and I did a show on on Daredevil's um is a long time ago now. Uh, and so uh and I do remember extended conversations with his priest and there's all sorts of um prayerful moments and so that that's its source is Frank Miller's um religious engagement basically. Yeah, Frank Miller is responsible for making Daredevil Catholic. Okay. Um, and so uh, now the problem is, you know, Frank Miller, you know, he writes all these great things in the 80s. He goes on to do some of his own stuff like Sin City and a few of these other things, things I, I haven't read. Or actually, I haven't seen the movies, haven't checked them out. Uh, in the 2000s, post 9-11, so he writes a sequel to Dark Knight Returns called Dark Knight Strikes Again. Right. And from what I... I, I do not enjoy it. Um, and apparently, uh, and this is something I got from listening to a podcast that Grant Morrison did with, on, uh, with, uh, Kevin Smith on bat, uh, fat man on Batman. Now it's called fat man beyond, but <laughs> he, uh, you know, just talking about how in the middle of writing dark Knight strikes again, um, nine 11 happens and that somehow alters Frank Miller's, uh, story that he's writing. I don't know all the details about that, but one thing 9-11 does do is put Miller on the path of writing basically a Batman versus Al-Qaeda tale that then um, then it stops being a... If you read it, Holy Terror, you can see where the Batman and Catwoman figures um, sort of present there that seem to carry on uh, the relationship that Batman and Catwoman have in Batman year one, which Miller also wrote is another important work for Batman lore. Yeah. Um, but it switches. He creates a character called the fixer, which is basically a Batman stand in. You see a commissioner Gordon type figure there, but basically you have Batman chasing the Catwoman analog and then there's a terrorist attack and the fixer just starts killing terrorists. Okay. Um, now the whole thing, the pro it's super problematic in terms of its representation of Islam as misogynistic. It's very Islamophobic. 
Um, there, it starts off with a with a quote from the Quran that says, "And kill the infidel whenever, wherever you find them." Ah. And, and if you t- if there's an interview with Frank Miller where he says, "You know, I don't know anything about Islam, but I know a lot about evil and terrorism." So I, I think he said that he didn't mean to go after Islam so much as just the terrorists themselves. But when you when you look at the images in this book, um, when you look at how he uses, um, actually, kill the infidel wherever you find them. See, I need to be careful because I said it's from the Quran. It might be a hadith. I'm not sure. Um, the point is, he like if you just assume that you have this Islamic text being spoken. Like whatever Miller's intentions, it represents Islam and Islamic people in a particular way to where it's going to affect the public perception of them. It's going to shape the discourse around it. And that's one very negative example of religious representation in comics. And that actually, I mean, it's interesting to to hear described. I was completely unaware of this until you just mentioned it. I, this is entirely new to me, but it sounds like Bill Maher, like talking about this sort of thing, right? There's there's a way in which you've got this um, this moment in American history when formerly liberal people like Dennis Miller, for example, uh, they, they become conservative. James Woods, I think, is another example of, of sort of like celebrity types um, who sort of become conservative at a certain moment as a reaction to basically 9-11. Right. And 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 it's based entirely on xenophobia. <laughs> and uh, and 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 then they adopt this sort of kind of new atheist stance like Bill Maher is like famous for this. And and I feel like the new atheism in his case, and this is me making a, a slur against Bill Maher. Uh, I, I'm taking full responsibility. This is not a fact I'm saying this is an opinion. Um, but I feel like his new atheism is a cover for racism. Okay. And I feel like for him to honestly pursue his hatred of Muslims, um, he has to also trash Christianity and all other religions uh, in order to be intellectually honest about it. But I think, I think it's a cover for kind of um, just bald racism. And, and so um, that's my opinion. Okay. And no one else is, uh, you know, that doesn't apply to anybody else. Um, and so no one else is responsible for what I just said. <laughs> and so um, I just don't like Bill Maher very much. But um, but this this book actually sounds like it comes out of that kind of moment. Um, and and he's at, it sounds like he's aping these very kind of crude talking points from that class of celebrity. Yeah. And, and you can contrast that with G. Willow Wilson, who's a Muslim woman writing about creating a superhero a teen uh, Muslim superhero that actually shows how complicated, nuanced, and complex religious life is from from someone on the inside because she's struggling with like, you know, she doesn't wear any type of head covering and like, but she has family members who do and friends who do. Like, she deals with um, the interactions of Muslims from across different cultural and uh, ethnic contexts. Uh, you know, the issue of like trying to be a good Muslim and dealing with, you know, um, you know, teenage sensibilities while also like adhering to her, uh, tradition, Mm -hmm. which is, which unfortunately back, I want to jump on this new atheist comment, you know, for people like Dawkins and, uh, the former Hitchens and, you know, the sort of new atheist types. Um, if you talk about religion as sophisticated and complicated and complex and multivocal, they'll tell you the only real religion is fundamentalist 
versions of it. And thus going you know, to that quote, the, the the epigraph that you described, right? That one line from the, the from the text that they go to to define the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. As if people aren't trying to. As if theology itself isn't an enterprise with diverse voices. I mean, theology may even try to be dogmatic, but. Um, you know, it's, it's, if it, if it was so dogmatic that people couldn't have different opinions on things, we wouldn't have thousands of Protestant denominations, um, in the world. And, you know, and that's just me talking as a Christian, you know, Judaism, uh, has a lot of different sects. And with Judaism, you get questions as, you know, more Orthodox, um, Jewish people may not adhere to this as much, but there's a place where, asking the questions itself is part of the, the process. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually, uh, I just listened to your, um, the author of the Jewish God. Um, oh, Andrew Pesson. Yeah. Yeah. The Jewish yeah, God question. Yeah. I think that's a point he made. Yeah. In fact, I think that's why I'm saying it because yeah. <laughs> he said it, um, on the previous episode. So, uh, yeah, like drawing that distinction, there's the caricature of the thing, the fundamentalists caricature of the thing. And then there's like the actual complexity of having, in G. Will Wilson's case, multiple types of Muslims interacting with each other. Yeah, yeah, and honestly, when I hear, when I see the memes that the sort of new atheist types, um, whatever purvey, I, I, you, I say you're taking this more literally than most Christians do. Right. And so I mean, they're, they're actually the most fundamentalist readers of, of scripture uh, and, uh, and therefore excluding themselves from this richer conversation, which leads them to make reductive representations um, like this one that you're describing is Holy Terror um, by Frank Miller. And I'm going to try as I can to jot these titles down and provide links in the show notes for folks who are interested in checking some of this work out um, at the end. And, um, and um, I, I'll, I guess I'll leak them to Amazon pages because I hate to, I hate to give Amazon any more business, but I don't know where else, <laughs> if I can find another place that would, you would sell it to you, I'll, I'll give you that link instead, but maybe the direct publisher, perhaps yeah, if I can yeah. find that. Yeah. Maybe that's, the, that's the way to go. But yeah. yeah, yeah. We can't pretend like reading religious text has been a reductive, purely grammatico historical thing, because even the way the um, early um, followers of Jesus interpreted text wasn't with this sort of reductionist linguistic grammatical style. They were using certain uh, first century forms of interpretation like Midrash and Pesher, Mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, uh, just as another throw out to someone who might be interested in reading something about this, Peter N's Inspiration and Incarnation uh, is a great book for dealing with these issues of in fact, it's, I think the subtitle is Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament, mm. <laughs> which, you know, J- Jewish people wouldn't call it the Old Testament. I, sure. I'm, starting to, I'm starting to be more mindful of how <laughs> I use uh, that term. But. I mean, you could feel free to speak theologically on this show. I think uh, my, my listeners, even if they don't agree, will understand. And so it, it's no problem. So, um, yeah, that's great. And, and, and I think it's also a moment we can talk about. I think we're probably going to end up talking about popular comics um, by and large here, pop culture and theology. But there is a, a literary form of comics that often gets sold under the term graphic novels because it sounds more highfalutin or whatever. But um, and so Persepolis is another is a is a, a, a kind of a, a canonical uh, graphic novel that people should read when they take comics seriously. It's right up there with Mouse and uh, yeah. and, and all those others, um, you know, that's sort of the big 
the canon of uh, of comics. And um, Marjane Sertrapi, she um, actually that's how she represents the Iranian Revolution. And you see kind of religious expressions in human complexity, right? And, and it's a much more honest and uh, and beautiful thing than this reductive holy terror <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that Frank Miller. Um, so I, I probably, I want to bring that up now because I doubt we'll get much beyond sort of the, the popular form of this. And so, um, but just know that comics itself is a pretty diverse field. Um, and there's lots of, uh, more, um, kind of highbrow versions of, uh, of the, of the form as well. So, um, so that's one sort of negative example from Frank Miller. Um, what are some other ones? Of, of just when we're talking about representation uh, of religion in comics. Yeah. So like I said, Frank Miller, and then of course juxtaposed to G. Willow Wilson. Uh, you could also throw out uh, an old X-Men graphic novel, uh, X-Men God loves man kills, where you have this fundamentalist preacher talking about how mutants, God hates mutants, uh, mutants are a mistake. And it's not too hard to see what the analog is there. Yeah. Um, so you, you have situations like that where you have these fundamentalist, basically anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ uh, people talk like not just I mean, it's not even uh, someone struggling with like, you know, I, I want to accept mutants, but like the Bible says I can't. It's not even that. It's, you know, it's the God hates, you know, these people and, you know, basically we're going to try to kill them. Yeah. Like is as if the Westboro Baptist Church uh, became in charge of everything, kind of right, and so um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, and I think um, Brian Singer clearly adopted that in his cinematic versions of X Men. I mean, maybe almost to a fault where he almost couldn't get beyond that <laughs> that idea. Like that's all the X Men are about, almost in those movies. But uh, but yeah, no, I think that that's definitely got some precedent there. Uh, or some uh, some consequence, I guess. So yeah, that's that's another good example. Um, you you'd written down Sandman, um, and that's one I have read, and so maybe we should talk about it. <laughs> well, with Sandman, uh, this might actually be a better one to save for either uh, theological concepts or metaphorical expressions, because with Sandman, uh, there's a lot of representation of different pantheons of gods, but uh, as one of the essays in uh, David's uh, Graven Images book points out that there's a lot of gods, but absent believers. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, great way to put it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's the title of that essay. So, um, so yeah, with Sam and you definitely got, I mean, you have all the, you have Satan, you have um, these different ideas, um, these different ideas from within religion being addressed, but in terms of rep- representation of religious believers and adherents um not so much um in terms of the communal expressions of communities of faith yeah yeah um and and i do just as a, a transition point then into these metaphorical expressions of religious themes um there is a moment in alan moore's run on the swamp thing when there is this sort of cult that's bringing it's been a while since i've read this there's some sort of south american cult that's uh conspiring to bring some evil into the world and the swamp thing has to get involved in this conversation of course and um and so that um is a kind of representation of a uh, of a religious practice 
it's probably made up or, <laughs> or exaggerated, yeah, yeah. but, um, but it also gets into this, um, example of the metaphorical expressions of religious themes. And so do you want to, um, talk about what that means to you and how Swamp Thing fits into that? I love Swamp Thing. I love Alan Moore's run. Um, there are so many themes to talk about. This is one of the things I teach in my religion literature class. I start off talking because Alan Moore restructures the way Swamp Thing even understands his himself. Yeah. Because he goes from being Alakal and transformed into Swamp Thing to being Swamp Thing with uh, Alakal's consciousness in him. Yeah. Which if you want to illustrate Hinduism and Buddhism with a popular example, like that whole self, no self, because with Hindus, you're the same self in a different body, yeah. the same soul. With Buddhism, you're not really a self. You're this, um, I forget the correct uh, lingo, but you're a conglomerate of five different pieces, basically, that all separate and join a different conglomerate of pieces. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, that is, I mean, the the conceptual genius of Alan Moore is to take a, a rather minor horror character from DC's catalog that nobody cared about anymore. Right. Um, and so the, me- the, the story of that, if you see the old swamp thing movie uh, with Adrian Barbeau, um, you should, which, you know, is a pretty fun movie. Actually. I really like that movie, but um, the, um, the, the origin story is very like every other origin story for a, a comic hero. You've got a scientist there's some lab experiment blow up thing um, and he ends up um, dying in the swamp and the swamp kind of reinvigorates him and so Alec Holland the man gets transformed into this monster called Swamp Thing right who has these superpowers and when Alan Moore um, inherits this uh, title he completely changes the origin story and so now he doesn't change the origin story he says that was all just a mistake basically alec hall swamp thing was always this elemental force of nature that had convinced itself that it was a man named alec holland right it was just gotten confused for a time right and so someone i believe it might be constantine comes in and uh and explains to him the reality of his uh, uh of his uh of his being and it's he transcends human identity in this way. Uh, and it's a really talk about like a, not only a philosophical exploration, but that's a big theological thing about just the nature of identity and being right. Yeah. And speaking of him being this being, you know, he's this elemental. Yeah. Um, who in a few different places he gets referred to as a genie G E N I I. So, which is this derivative of, this word jinn, which is this type of being in Islamic thought that are these like, you know, they're not like angels and demons. They're these sort of ambiguous other type, but they're like, they, they, they're corporeal in some ways. They're elemental in some ways. Um, and these beings are capable of living in community and even be capable. They're capable of becoming, um, Muslims, they're capable of becoming, uh, living it, being a part of the Ummah. Mm. And so, uh, it's interesting when Swamp Thing goes, he go, he finds the parliament of trees, which is this community of these elemental types. And it's just interesting. They're living in community and they're, you know, they're almost these gin like creatures. So, you know, there are some things to explore there. Um, in the arcane trilogy, when one of the things I did with that, and I had to give a trigger warning was, when um, Abby basically is raped by her uncle Arcane and her husband's body, um, 
I found this book on sexual abuse and sacred text, and I I walked through some of that. Um, I walked through some of those issues of like dealing with abuse through sacred text, mm-hmm. and then I um, I I use that text again for a different thing, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, why well, I, I also used it in Sandman with uh, Sandman and Nadia, the woman he sends to hell because she didn't want to spend eternity with him. Yeah. Compared it to Ezekiel 16 where God lays Israel bare and um, punishes her for not loving him. And so I did some interesting textual comparisons there. But, um, you know, in Swamp Thing, you have this situation where then Swamp Thing has to go to hell to save Abby's soul. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this like reverse pilgrimage yeah. uh, of uh, Dante's Inferno yes. or the Divine Comedy where he starts off, uh, well, he starts off in an in-between place, then goes to paradise where he meets Alec Holland, who might reincarnate one day because you can reincarnate once you're in paradise, but he has, has chosen not to yet. Then he leaves and goes to another in-between place, the last place that can be called a place, and then ends up in hell. Um, which brings up some interesting features of the cosmology in Swamp Thing because you have this idea of there's this place where when you move into hell, you're in a place where um, you're moving from the world of order and reason to the world of unreason and chaos. And even beyond hell, there's just, or the underworld or whatever, there's just this watery chaos as it were. And so I usually use that to show my students um, sort of ancient Near Eastern cosmology. So you have like, um, the heavens, you have the earth, then you have the underworld. But even outside of the underworld, there's this watery chaos where all of these monsters abide. Mm-hmm. And so and so when you get to the end of Swamp Thing 50, you have this ancient evil coming out of the watery chaos, and it's depicted as watery chaos, um, and it's going to try to usurp God and heaven. Um, but then in keeping with Alan Moore's sort of non-dualistic uh, non-binary nature of things like there's this reconciliation between the hand of God and the hand of this, yeah. um, this, uh, darkness. Yeah. And then things reset basically. And that, that I, if I remember right, that moment in which those hands meet, it forms a yin yang. Um, there's a swirling, uh, and you, uh, you do get the, uh, the, the representation of a yin yang. Am I, am I, am I remember misremembering that? Um, I think I- I think so. I don't. I, I might not have. I might not have noticed the image of the yin yang. So that's okay. very interesting. <laughs> I was making this point. The image is right there. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and yeah. I do remember that. And and his. You, I want to just kind of follow up on your observation of his commitment to non-binary thinking. Right. Uh, there's that kind of pervades this, and it really works to kind of. He uses superhero forms to kind of undermine superhero mythologies. Um, and as you would expect from the guy who wrote Watchmen, I mean, that's sort of like the persistent um, aim of most of his career. Right. But in this case, I remember one particular, I did a conference paper on, on Swamp, Swamp Thing once. And so a lot of this is coming back to me now. So, uh, <laughs> um, but the, so you're uh, getting excited. I, I am. Yeah. It's very, uh, there's a, the, the little sequence when there's a vampire community, um, and, and they're attacking the town. And so, you know, you fight the vampires cause they're evil. Right. And that's the way that these narratives are set up. But then, 
the narrative like just demonstrates and Swamp Thing comes to the realization that these are just, uh, this is another form of life trying to survive, right? And so to conceive of them as evil is in itself kind of evil, right? Um, they are just sort of, it's sort of nature uh, just at work and you have this this dark and light that need each other and, and it just sort of depends on where you are in the grand scheme of things as to how you define what is good and what is evil. And so our hatred and destruction of this vampire community is actually a genocide. Um, this is not, <laughs> this is not like defending anything good. It is actually um, perpetrating a genocide. And, uh, and it's just a really complicated ethical like uh, question that he raises in that story. And it's amazing to me that what he was able to do philosophically and theologically with the Swamp Thing character over the years that he he uh, wrote that it's it's a really rich um, six I think it's collected in six volumes um, that you can buy and it's a, a standard comic text you can find those volumes anywhere um, I have mine from grad school still but um, and uh, yeah it's it's a really really great run that opens up a lot of questions and the fact and talk about representations I mean the fact that there is a hell that is a place of medieval torture. I mean, Arcane's the way Arcane is tortured in hell is, is every bit as um, horrifying as any medieval drawing of, of, of hell. Uh, and it's a, uh, it's, there's a really interesting representation of religious ideas that works to serve as a way for us to kind of metaphorically um, theologize about them. <laughs> I think, I think it's a really great example. Um, Animal Man, I have not uh, read. Uh, I have been suggested to, but I have not uh, been able to find time to do it yet. Um, you have something to say about it in Job? I, I have so many things to say about Animal Man because I have so many things to say about Grant Morrison, <laughs> um, who I, who I adore. Like I, I love Grant Morrison, you know, Alan Moore, you know, elevated the medium and brought real life the the joke is that you know or the saying is alan moore brought real life into comic books but morrison brought comic books into real life um awesome and so one of the things uh morrison does here so his story starts off kind of alan moore-esque he's potentially aping alan moore a little bit um and so by the way i just realized in using that word aping is that it's a weird weird expression Monkeys, because monkeys copy people, right? That's sort of like the... I mean, gosh, talk about a digression here that's right up my alley. Uh, it reminds me of Kafka's story, A Report for an Academy, in which you have an ape who's delivering a speech before uh, some academics, basically, about his life and how he came to learn the language and be able to work among humans speaking their language. And it all begun, begins with imitation. Um, and to me, that story is a really... I, when I teach it, I talk about it as being a very pes like cynical view of education because basically education is the giving up of everything you're, of yourself for the imitation of someone else just to sort of fit in for, the, for the, what passes as freedom, but is not really freedom. It's just sort of a more comfortable cage. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that's a digression that probably no one else yeah. is interested in, but I love Kafka. And yeah, and that works really well with the way he uses the term ape, I think. so. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, there's a sense in which he's copying and imitating more in his style. And it's actually the story actually about apes, um, where you have, uh, this forgotten hero from the silver age, buddy Baker, he can copy animal powers that he's near 
he gets rebooted, so he has a family, two kids, uh, and he wants to become a superhero again and get back out there. And he responds to this call for help uh, to investigate this break-in at Star Labs medical research on animals or whatever. And then you have this other hero, Buana Beast, who uh, can, I think, merge two beings into each other or something. And it turns out this lab captured Buana Beast's buddy. And so he's trying to get him out, and this puts him at odds with Animal Man. Um, and so it ends basically with Buana Beast takes that the head scientist and merges him with the dead body of his friend. <laughs> and then that ape is... Uh, either subject to experimentation or something like but dude it's such a creepy ending like you see the the guy's eyes are going wide and it's like oh wow this guy's about to like get his like <laughs> um so and you know buddy baker has this great line like at the end where he's like he ends up curing wannabes because he's also dying of an illness but he's like you know what was i supposed to do turn him into the police like a good little superhero <laughs> so it, it's this great line but even at the beginning here um, they talk about uh, Animal Man keeps referring to the crisis like they're all this. This is right after Crisis on Infinite Earths, which rebooted the DC universe and got rid of all of the extra realities and multiple Earths and streamlined the line. Mm -hmm. um, and so but it, it gets referred to throughout. And basically, one of the things Morrison's run shows as it keeps going, it gets more metafictional. Um, so you have the gospel according to Crafty, which is about this cartoon wolf who's a cartoon in Buddy's world, who comes to our world um, because he's trying to, it's as a deal to his God who brings him into the real world so that he can suffer on behalf of his cartoon friends who are like these Warner Brothers analogs who you know, are always just getting hurt and tortured and dropping off cliffs or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so it's, all, it's the story about like the nature of reality the nature of God. And then at the end of the story, you see an artist paintbrush draw in the red blood because crafty dies. Uh -huh. And so you start seeing these metafictional hints and these happen all the way up through, um, Morrison's run. And in the final volumes, um, you start seeing people, things happen, like people get deconstructed into like how you would see an artist, like draw a circle and then lines through it to show where the face would be. Like sometimes they get deconstructed into that and yeah. disappear. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the final, what you end, what ends up happening is because of Buddy's activism for animal rights, because he becomes a vegetarian after the first arc, um, he ends up. Uh, the government doesn't like it. His family is killed, and then he keeps trying to go through time and bring them back, but he can't. And you see his shadowy essence earlier on in the run but you don't know what's happening and it doesn't become clear until the final issues. Um, there's also this portion where this, the only villain from crisis on infinite earths to remember that event is psycho pirate and he's in Arkham asylum and he's going crazy because he remembers all the worlds that died. Uh. All the characters he remembers like the silly silver age stuff and all this stuff, they start to appear around him. And basically Morrison's critique is like, there were so many good characters and ideas here and what we did was we took all the fun and fantasticalness out of comics to make them serious. Ah. Um, so in the end, um, there's this whole crisis there with all that that gets resolved. Buddy goes home, um, and then he ends up 
He opens his door, front door. He walks through limbo, which is where comic book ideas that get forgotten go to like just live in limbo. He actually comes across a monkey with a typewriter writing a story, and then the <laughs> monkey dies. Um, but he ends up uh, – he walks through limbo, finds his way. He thinks he's going to come across the answers to his questions. He's basically out there for years, comes back to his house, and it turns out it's his house. His dog and cat are dead. <laughs> Like, and he's like, what is happening here? Um, what ends up happening is he ends up meeting. He, I forget how he ends up there. I have to go back and look at the specifics of the story, but he basically ends up in this, uh, city street. He goes to this house, knocks on the door and Grant Morrison answers. Mm. Um, and what Morrison has done is basically put himself into his own work in what he would call fiction suit. Yeah. And the way Morrison talks about it is he's, you know, he's an anthropologist entering a different world with its own rules versus being a missionary who makes the world of comics do what he wants. He understands comics have its own rules, which are fantastical and are meant to be creative and exceptional. This is sort of his rebuke of Moore's realism. Yeah. Um, but he has this whole conversation with Buddy where he's like, you know, I created you. I made you. I'm the one who killed your family. Yeah. Um, and I had to do it because we need to entertain ourselves through violence because our world is boring and has a lot of loose ends and things don't resolve after 21 pages. And and so I, I relate that to Job and like the question of like, I've suffered. Why have I suffered God? Interesting. And like comparing those conversations between creators and people. And also talk about the nature of like tiered reality of like comic world, our world, maybe a higher world, which Morrison himself does. Yeah. Oh, that is very interesting. And so, yeah, these are both really good examples of the way in which certain comic books um, like metaphorically uh, represent, I guess, uh, religious uh, moments, re religious, uh, themes, religious, uh, in this case, the book of Job, right. And those kind of questions. And yeah, and that's a really great example. And as you were talking, it reminded me a little bit going back to swamp thing. Um, Alan Moore actually writes himself into the end of that as well. Or, uh, there's a, uh, at the end of his run with it, swamp thing and, um, his woman, I forget the the woman's name, uh, Abby, Abby. Uh, they go off into the swamp together and just to disappear basically. And, uh, there's a reporter who wants to go follow them. And there's a boatman that works the swamp who looks exactly like Alan Moore, who refuses to take the reporter, um, into, <laughs> into any further to look for swamp thing anymore. And so he just sort of writes himself out of the narrative in that way. Um, but yeah, that's, that's fascinating that, that whole, any kind, anytime you start talking about like meta narratives and sort of postmodern ontological questions like that, there are really interesting religious uh, and theological ramifications to those th that style, to those the, to those moves. And both of these works kind of do that um, in very interesting ways. And, and with Animal Man, like Job, he gets he gets everything back. Uh, great. <laughs> um, and, and that's where like for Morrison, he's just like you know, in comic books, I can give a happy ending because. It's it's fiction and fantastical, and this stuff can happen. Oh, that's great. Um, that's fascinating. I'll have to check that out. I can see why it was recommended to me. Um, so the third, so if the first was just sort of representations of religious practice or whatever, the second is sort of metaphorical um, explorations of religious themes. The third one um, are theological concepts as ref as explored through comics text. Um, you talked about how you think Sandman probably fits in this better. Um 
Yeah. Um, I, so I, Alan Moore has a book called, I think it's The View from the Cheap Seats. Mm-hmm. And he does kind of, he, he equates mythology with the, the theology and makes them like equal in terms of like what they are. At least the way he writes it and words it. Um, that's not quite, I wouldn't quite say that that's true. That um, I think myth, mythos is a part of theology but and of religion, but I don't think it's a one-to-one ratio. So, um, but, but there's definitely that sense in which uh, if we're talking about the actual appearance of divine creatures and divinity, you definitely have the appearance of these different entities there, although it is... Uh, it's definitely a polytheistic world. Um, you know, there does seem to be a ultimate God, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ultimate God is never seen, but speaks through a representative. Yeah, those two angels. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I mean, there are ideas about what hell is. Uh, you know, at the end of the season of Mist Arc, you know, basically the idea is that Satan leaves hell. Um, and gives up his role. And that's where you get the Lucifer series that comes afterward. Yeah. Um, that now there's a adaptation, but, um, but yeah, so you, you basically have all these different pantheons wanting the site, the so-called psychic real estate of hell. And the question is like, how do people end up in hell? Um, and there's definitely a sense you get from both Moore and Guyman that hell is something that people choose, which leads into interesting discussions about the nature of hell. Like, Mm -hmm. and I'll have them read an article on you know whether hell is you know what is it the i think it's the consequentialist view of hell where it's like you're there because of your own choices and consequences versus uh, like you chose this god doesn't put you here Mm -hmm. Um, and then as you get into it further you find out people are there because secretly they want to be there because they're either masochists or sadists and so in the end two of the angels take over hell and they say now we'll use these sufferings to redeem you yeah. which is it's which is its own like universal reconciliation idea yeah that you could talk about a little bit um and again just there's huh. all there are all these concepts of hell that you get there like traditional views you can talk about you can talk about annihilationism uh universal reconciliation yeah, that I remember that um, part of. It's been many years since I've read Sandman, but I do remember that that series. And there's like a, everyone. So somehow, Morpheus Sandman ends up with the keys to hell. They're like literal keys to this <laughs> to this like real estate. It's treated as if it is property, right? That has value. And uh, and so once Satan abdicates, he empties it out. He lets everybody go, and so it's just this barren wasteland. And uh, and he gives the keys to Morpheus and all these metaphysical beings like there's i think the norse gods are there um there might be egyptian gods i can't remember all the different ones but there's all these metaphysical beings that want this real estate and these two angels descend and are speaking god's words through their voices and and basically god says look these guys are going to run it for me. I got to have a hell, right? <laughs> and so that is <laughs> that idea. I mean, I'm putting, I'm paraphrasing um, bluntly, right? But but the idea is for God to exist then, I mean, the implication is for God to exist, there has to be a, a place of absence from God, right? And so I think that's a really powerfully interesting assertion and and just pondering why God needs a hell, like leads someone to some really, I think, 
wonderful thinking about their faith, right? And like, why is it that we need a hell um, in order to worship a God, right? And so in order to serve a God. Um, and and I, I just think that, that I've always been wrestling with that question ever since I read that. I think it's the most fascinating um, little turn of events in that book. And so, and that's one of many ways in which that, that title engages with questions like that, right? Um, you have others though here. Um, spiritual warfare. Uh, the, uh, and you want to talk about Batman here? Maybe this is what you're getting into in your uh, in your Bowling Green. Uh, I don't know. Uh, no, actually, that'll be the next one. Nature of evil is deprivation. Um, but the spiritual warfare thing. So in this uh, older work, of, again, Grant Morrison. Um, you have this five issue story that's written like a piece of Gothic literature. So it starts off and you have the opening page, which is a rose and thorn encrusted opening deal. Um, and you, uh, it deals with, um, a character who wants to trap the souls of Gotham using the architecture of Gotham cathedral, which will channel spiritual energy, um, It'll, it, it can either chat like the, depending on how you look at the, uh, the, the geometry, it either channels energy up towards God or travel or it channels, uh, people down towards hell. Okay. (laughs) And so, um, there's this whole idea I get into with, uh, the role that architecture and institutions play in shaping human interaction, the social world. And so I do a few things here. Um, again, I use an article from, David's Graven Images book that talks about psychogeography actually in From Hell and Moore's From Hell. Right. But with, but with psychogeo- psychogeography, um, which is based on some stuff with, there's a connection there with, I think, Dada, surrealism, situationism. But, but one of the things that, um, that psychogeography deals with is the way that urban architecture affects mood and affects social relationships and things like that. And from there, it's not that much of a leap to then talk about someone like Walter Wink, who deals with um, the idea of spirit, who has this whole trilogy on the quote powers, like the idea of uh, spiritual forces. And so if any people have ever read Frank Peretti, you know, what Peretti does is show that there's this, there are these angels and demons fighting behind the scenes of the world we're living and and wink for wink those powers are depersonalized so they're impersonal forces um that re- revolve around the institutions of social life and for wink you would say that in the same way that there's a physical element to these institutions institutions also have a spirituality that's mm-hmm. shaped by things like the social relationships and the culture that's built in that place and so on which is why you can sometimes walk into um, you can walk into certain places and feel weirded out, basically. Sure, yeah. Um, or just feel like there's something off here. Um, and Wink might say that that's because of the spirituality of that place, mm. which we are then called to confront and change, nonviolently, but to change. Okay. And, and so I relate that with the way that the architecture of Gotham Cathedral is used. So I talk about psychogeography and I put that in conversation with Wink's idea of spiritual warfare and the way we confront the way um, buildings, architecture, institutions affect us socially and spiritually. Oh, that's fascinating. And I, I have read From Hell. Um, I love that that book, actually. And um, that the 
the way that's used in that book is that Jack the Ripper is part of this Masonic conspiracy and um, he's ritualistically killing people to kind of fit in with this um, geometric idea of designing the city spaces to actually order people's spiritual lives uh, in, in, in controlled ways. And so it's, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating book. Um, very graphic, but, uh, but very fascinating. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And something, another resource I'm totally unaware of um, wink. I'm to, I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. Um, go ahead. He, he, he is a popular book, uh, which is the one I use, which is just the powers that be okay by Walter wink. And that's, that's the one I use because he breaks down different ways. He breaks down some. He does some worldview discussion before he gets into a chapter or two. I mean, the whole book is about it, but I just use one or two chapters from it. And it's fascinating the way you describe it. Actually, I'm reminded of um, James K. A. Smith. I know everybody's listening to me moans every time I mention James K. A. Smith, but I'm a fanboy. Um, but the uh, but his uh, cultural liturgies project is about the way in which. Uh, the world is set up to direct our desires in certain ways. And so um, now he's talking more about institutions than physical spaces, but physical spaces are part of that for sure. Uh, and, and I think that there could be a, a connection there between those two. Um, um, Augustine, Batman, RIP. <laughs> yeah. So um, again, a lot of this is Grant Morrison uh, because again, he's like, he's the guy I like to write about. Um, and talk about and teach about. And so with Morrison, he ha- he does Batman R. He d- so Batman R.I.P. is a part of Morrison's seven-year Batman run, mm-hmm. which is worth picking up. Everything from Batman and Son to Batman R.I.P. Then there's an event comic called Final Crisis that explores the themes in the larger DC universe. Return of Bruce Wayne, Time and the Batman, Batman and Robin, Batman Incorporated. Worth reading as a whole. Um, and so there's a villain that pops up, Dr. Simon Hurt, and you basically aren't sure whether or not he might be the devil incarnate. Mm. And he refers to himself with this line, the hole in things, the piece that doesn't fit. And which goes into this idea you get from someone like Augustine about how evil isn't a positive presence. Evil is what happens when a moth eats a garment. Mm. Evil is what happens when someone is shot and the bullet hole is left. Evil is now, it's an absence, but it's an absence that causes, that, that perverts the good. Okay. And, and Hurt's whole goal is to pervert good souls. And that's part of what happens in Batman R.I.P. It's, he says, our goal is nothing less than the destruction of a noble soul. Yeah. Um, and so, and that gets explored in Final Crisis as well, which has problems in terms of some of its pacing. Um, like it's not, it's not more Morrison's best work, but if you understand his stuff, it's conceptually very interesting. Where Darkseid becomes the big DC villain becomes the hole into which all of creation almost falls in. Okay. And so, this idea of evil as as absence, evil as holes. Um, is, is very, this evil is deprivation and the lack. I think Aquinas even has something about like a hole in a garment. Oh, that's, like, yeah. That, that is fascinating. What a great concept. I'm, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. That, and so that's, that's what I'll be talking about 
um, at the Batman conference, actually. Oh, I definitely will sit down on that one. Uh, that, that sounds very exciting to me. I hope we don't present at the same time, actually. Um, no, that's great. And, and what a great concept for us to uh, consider. I, I, off the air, I want to ask you a couple questions about that, actually, for something I'm working on. But uh, um, I want to, the couple other things you have down here. Um, eschatology and Kingdom Come, uh, that is, I mean, Alex Ross, the, the artist of that, draws these like mythological, I mean, just detailed portraiture of superhero. And it takes on this mythological sort of um, scope. I mean, it's, it's powerful artwork. Right. Um, and, and I know that the, that book has a lot of um, sort of religious uh, second coming sorts of themes. Right. And so, uh, yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even just have themes. It has, direct quotes from revelation yeah. throughout. Yeah. Um, and you basically have this, I mean, it's, it's apocalyptic literature in the sense of like, you literally have this, this priest who has a divine being, the specter appear to him and has him watch from behind the scenes as, uh, these conflicts in the world between the older generation of heroes and their division and a new generation of amoral superhumans who just fight for fighting sake. Mm. Um, and the older heroes having different ways of um, wanting to deal with them. Uh, do we imprison them? Do we re-educate them? What about other forces behind the scenes that are trying to cause all these metahumans to fight each other so that they destroy themselves? Like you have all this, you know, you have the UN that wants to nuke them all so that the world ends. But um, you, you have a lot of stuff that happens there. Um, at some point, I'd like to see if I could get Elizabeth Fiorenza's book on Revelation to match up with it. Um, one problem in my teaching I'm noticing is I, I'm I can be I try to I, I'm trying to do better representation in terms of when I teach because you know the three people we've mentioned all white writers you know what I mean sure, except yeah. for like G. Will Wilson so um, Walter Wink and like all these different people I'm trying to to branch out a little bit um, and so Fiorenza has a book on Revelation I've been meaning to read for a few years now. But anyway, you have this whole deal in Kingdom Come where uh, you have all this apocalyptic imagery, all this apocalyptic talk. You know, is the whole world going to end? Is a group of people going to get killed so others can live? Which leads into some interesting stuff on scapegoating and Rene yeah. Girard, which uh, others have written about. I think there's even, there might be an article in Graven Images, but also I think in Bible and pop culture, there's one too. Um, that's one that gets taken up a few different times. Hmm. Um apocalyptic as revenge fantasy literature i think that's engraven images anyway mm. um all this stuff gets taken up uh there's definitely allusions to like the second coming of superman and yeah uh, the idea of a god the idea of a god man who has to decide how the outcome goes yeah uh and who becomes the scapegoat basically who brings peace which the jesus imagery is obviously there the god man and that's what that's with Captain Marvel or as he's known now, Shazam. Yeah. Um, so th there's a lot there that's, that's worth exploring. Kingdom come gets a bit of a, a bit of a, uh, by people who study comics, it gets a little bit of a critique because it sits in this weird place between the modern age of comics, which was the dark gritty realism and the nostalgic age that tries to resuscitate more fantastical stuff. Yeah. And how uh, I think Julian, Darius from Sequart has said it. I think it was his book where he said it, it doesn't necessarily like it, it, it hinders it because like the tone that sort of like in between place between those two things affects it. 
Um, I have to go back and look at his critique. I, I've seen him and some others do that, um, critique it in that way. Oh, fascinating. Um, and yeah, and Superman is one of those characters that it, um, it, it's impossible to not see the, to not try to make some like messianic figure out of him, right? You've got this godlike figure coming to earth from the outside of earth, right? To, to redeem the earth, right? <laughs> and, then, and the man of steel movie bends over backwards to kind of make this, uh, to make this comparison. And, and, and it's interesting that this seems like a source comic for a lot of that as well. And so, yeah, that's definitely on my list. Uh, my fr- good friend, Nathan lent it to me and I, I need to actually read it now. So, um, and finally, the last thing I want to talk about is, um, uh, the Dark Knight Returns uh, and political theology for two reasons. Um, I, I'm kind of always curious what people are talking about when they talk about political theology. This is an interesting uh, concept to me, and I just want to learn more about it. But when you were talking about scapegoating, um, that's how I always read the end of The Dark Knight. It's a very kind of Oedipal um, vision of redemption in that Batman, the movie uh, with the Christopher Nolan movie, Batman has to take the the ire of the city upon himself and become like the evil that they're all chasing and he has to exit polite society uh in order to save society right and so you've got this kind of really interesting um i think greek tragic version of redemption in that movie that the dark knight rises converts into some sort of messianic Christian version of redemption and i think that that's a uh, uh an interesting move there but uh Nonetheless, let's stick to the, the Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns uh, and political theology. So political theology, um, so a lot of what political theology does is a lot of it is responding to this thinker, Carl Schmitt. And Carl Schmitt is this uh, early 20th century German jurist. Um, also, as I love to tell my students, a little bit of a Nazi. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things Schmitt did was he critiqued uh, modern liberalism for the fact that it it can basically deliberate without end, but if an emergency comes up, there's no one left to make the decisive decision that uh, that deals with that emergency. Like when a way of life is threatened, do we have someone who can say, look, we just have to act now. We have to act. And for, uh, for Schmidt, he talks about this idea of a sovereign. Okay. Um, who, who is an exception, like you have, you have a rule that you follow, a universal rule, but sometimes the stakes rise so high that you need someone who can step outside of the rule and be the exception to the rule who decides in favor of, um, the exceptional situation. And you see this in the dark night. I'm glad you brought that up because you have this idea. Harvey Dent says it like you, um, you either, you know, the Romans, when they needed to appoint someone to take care, when the city was besieged, they suspended the rule of law, appointed someone until the emergency was over. Yeah, and so in Batman, you see Batman doing stuff like that in The Dark Knight, where he's the exception to the rule who brings order to this the chaos that's going on in the city. The surveillance uh, system that he um, destroys at the end, right? That that's an example of that. Yeah, and you know, and there's a good point at the end, like. You know, uh, Rachel tells Harvey, like, the last person to do that was Caesar, and he didn't give the authority back. Mm-hmm. And so Harvey says, well, you live long, you die a hero, you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, which is part of the problem with Schmidt's whole thought is that, you know, sure, you can say that you're okay with a sovereign, um, but what if you get Hitler? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that's why, that's, and because he, 
he sort of saw the Third Reich as bringing a sense of stability and order, like, um, you know, and he sort of has writings that seem to lend the idea that lend credence to dictatorship. Like he, there's all this problematic stuff about Schmidt. Um, but one of the things that Schmidt notes in political theology is the way he has this famous line. It's a short little book, chapter three, that all modern notions of the state are secularized theological concepts. Okay. And so he talks about how in the same way we have a law and an exception, so we might have a law of nature and a miracle. Um, and so you have these different ideas that carry over that form our notions of how the state works. Um, and you have other recent writers like William Cavanaugh talking about how whatever it was that made church institutions holy and caused us to give our allegiance to them, that holy has migrated from the church to the state. Okay. Um, and so the state carries that element of the sacred with it. Um, so political theology in part deals with the sacred nature of secular, even secular politics, the theological structures of those politics. Um, there was something else I was going to say. Um, I can't remember now. But yeah, so, so political theology. Um, yeah, I, I can't remember what I was going to say, but it's, it, it's in part dealing with that um, – the theological nature of some of our secularized concepts of state. Yeah. And so, I mean, in pre-modernity with the divine right of Kings, that was not really a question. The government was of course, an extension of, of the, of God. Right. And so, um, but even in the enlightenment, um, this, this position claims that it effectively functions. It, it, it displaces God, if not, if it, 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 it functions as, as sacred uh, in, in the way that it always has. <laughs> Power still sort of functions that way. Okay, fascinating. And so, the, how the, and so yeah, there's obviously a giant uh, global sociopolitical argument in uh, The Dark Knight Returns and that Superman has become sort of a functionary of the President of the United States. Uh, and, so, and so that book's conflict between Batman and Superman seems to be asking rather theological questions when approached from this political theological perspective. Sure. Um, I, I would back it up before that, though, um, to talk about um, more so the first half of The Dark Knight Returns, because in that you see the situation where Batman's retired and Gotham has gone bad and there's this emergency situation and people are just talking about it. Like you have these figureheads on the news who are deferring and arguing, but no one's doing anything about it. And it's Batman who steps up and says, look, something needs to be done. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and he steps up and in a way, the way a sovereign works is that they exist. Um, in a way they're a part of the system of law, but they're outside of it. Okay. There's a, I'm not sure if I'm, there's a better way to articulate that. I know a Schmidt scholar is probably going to be like, no, you said it wrong. Um, but I think, I think whoever you are listening, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, there is some relationship there in the same way that Batman is outside of the law, but until commissioner Gordon leaves, he does work with the police department, but he's outside of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and this was the thing I was going to say about also what makes Schmidt in particular political theology. What, what makes it theology is the fact that the decision 
that an emergency is happening isn't something you can reasonably discourse about or justify. Okay. You decide. It's it's sort of like a faith from nowhere. Yeah. That you decide. And and it's that faith that makes it theology, at least in part. I gotcha. Uh, for for Schmidt's political theology, which is really the political theology I'm most familiar with. Um but in Batman's case, he's this exception to the rule, which at first, you know, um, there is a type of relationship between the rule of law and then the exception outside of that rule that takes care of what the rule can't do. Okay. But, but even after he gets criminalized, there's this line at the end where the new commissioner says he's too big. And that's the thing about the sovereign is that they can't be um, – critiqued by the rule because an exception by its nature um, you can't have a rule that anticipates an exception and, and so even even though he eventually is made illegal there's this realization over time that he's too big even then um, you can't uh, you can't stop he's bigger than the question of whether or not it was legal that he broke into the apartment in that way mm-hmm. because it was necessary because the emergency circumstance required it and in Batman's case, again, with Batman, you see why that's necessary, and we all root for him, I guess, in there. We all root for Daredevil when he says, like, look, I might be a lawyer, but when the law fails, I'm going to go be Daredevil. He says this in season one. I'm going to go be Daredevil and take care of some stuff. Yeah. Captain America, like, look, I don't have time for the UN to decide we should go. We need to go because, it's like, you see this idea of sovereignty in multiple yeah. places where we see it in our superheroes. But when we really start thinking about it, like, um, you know, a lot of people in the Bush administration were reading Schmidt. And so, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, I do. <laughs> I do know uh, what you mean. These questions about overreach and um, presidential powers and all these conversations we were having during uh, the Bush administration. um we can thank Schmidt. That's fascinating. And then, I mean, and it gives us a theological way to think about politics then. And, and, and sort of, uh, in, in new, it gives an interesting perspective that I think is really helpful. Um, Matt, this has been awesome. I've, (laughs) I've learned a lot. Um, and, and I've taken notes while we've been talking and, uh, I'm going to put links to, I think what most of everything we've talked about in the show notes, I've tried to keep track of it and, uh, and I'll provide some links. It might take me an extra few minutes to make the show notes, um, copying and pasting website links, but, um, but I think it'll be worth it for the listeners. If uh, anybody out there listening has any questions or responses to anything we've said, um, by all means, you know, where to contact us over at the Facebook page or wherever else. Um, and, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and if, you have any ideas that you want to add on to anything we've said that's the facebook page has been a great place for that conversation to extend and so i really appreciate any feedback that you guys want to give um and matthew good luck again with the the publishing series i'll see you here in a month or so at the at the conference and uh i'm looking forward to meeting you in person and uh like i said anybody else out there in uh the Ohio area and Bowling Green that wants to come say hello, uh, you can catch us out there. Um, um, I will put links to how to find Matthew's stuff, uh, pop culture and theology. But uh, until then, I want to thank him, Matt. Thanks again for being on the show. Um, and everybody listening, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. <laughs>